The Bob Murphy Show, episode 182. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show Today, I'm going to be offering a modest proposal for how we should handle the issue of children in libertarian legal theory. And yes, my title is a pun for those of you who get the joke. So this all came out of the discussion back in episode 180, where we were talking about kids and certain things where they can't give meaningful consent or valid consent. And so I, I thought, I was just thinking about this issue more, and I had an idea, and so I thought I'd spell it out in the podcast. It, at first, I was like, well, no, this this could be important, Bob. I mean, this might be a major contribution after you're dead. People looking back and saying, what did what does Clown Murphy do besides uh, funny videos about Paul Krugman? And maybe this would be one of the things that you were noted for. And then I thought, you know, but then if I wait to try to write up in a journal article... I might not ever get around to doing it. And why don't just, just tell the people? And if one of you hears this and you want to go write it up, just, just say in a footnote in the beginning of your article that you got a lot of these ideas from my podcast. It's like that old saying goes, a young scholar is afraid people will steal his ideas and an old scholar is afraid that they won't. So I'm kind of like mid-range. If somebody else wants to do it, I'll say, okay, thank you. No, I don't have to do it. Okay. So before I dive into what I think is maybe the right way to handle this stuff, let me first just take a step back and explain what are we doing when we talk about libertarian law. So the idea is we're imagining a free society, right? Just like the pinko commies try to envision their society. And incidentally, Marx apparently said that people who would try to get real specific and talk about what the coming socialist utopia will look like. He was saying they're being unscientific, right? We don't do that. We libertarian types, we realize it's scary to envision a world without the state. You know, your good buddies up there in DC <laughs> who are smarter and more moral than you are, without them taking your money and starting wars, what kind of crazy world would we be living in? But I, I realize proposals to privatize the police and military sound terrifying. And so that's why people like Murray Rothbard and David Friedman literally devote books to trying to spell out what this kind of world would look like and how would things work. And, you know, how, how could we get the advantages of the private sector? I mean, we, we can all recognize that you want the private sector in charge of computer production and car production and food production, right? And so... If you can see what a disaster it would be to let the state run those sectors, and then you say, in reality, the state runs like the courts and the prisons and the military, and are we sure those areas are characterized by efficiency and justice? It's not obvious that they are. 
it looks like, huh, maybe government performance in those sectors is just as bad as it is in the other ones. And then the, the issue is just, okay, but is there some reason that the private provision of those services would be even worse? Whereas we can all see private production of computers and cars works fine. Maybe there's something special about judicial services or police services or military defense that makes the private sector inept at providing those particular ones. So that's, that's a possibility. I get that. In any event, libertarians do not shy away from trying to explain the mechanisms for how society would work if it were just private property rights and that's it. And there's no institution called the state that has the power to tax or to or have a monopoly on legal disputes in a certain jurisdiction. So, for example, Murray Rothbard had a whole book called The Ethics of Liberty, where he spun out the implications of basic libertarian property rights theory. So it starts out with the idea that you own yourself, you own your own body, you have the right to homestead, unowned property, unowned land, and then you have the ability to trade your property titles with other people for their property titles. And so there you go. The bedrock of Rothbard's legal theory was the NAP, the non-aggression principle. And let me just explain the interaction of legality and morality. All right, so if an action is illegal or immoral, those are distinct things. They overlap in a lot of cases, right? There are plenty of things that are both illegal and immoral, but there are things that are immoral but not illegal. So, for example, calling up your grandma and saying, just out of the blue, just for fun, hey, grandma, I hate your guts. I hope you die and hang up the phone. That's clearly immoral, but shouldn't really be against the law, right? It's, it's not against the law, and nor should it be to do that, right? There are actions... I could probably come up with some that would be illegal but not immoral. I mean, there'd be obvious stuff like, oh, what about when you're in Nazi Germany and they want you to report who's hiding the base? I'm not talking about when the regime is unjust and the laws are bad. I'm saying even in a free society with what we think are perfectly sensible laws, I'm sure we could come up with scenarios where, I, I mean... There's stuff like you're out in the woods and you come across and you're starving to death and you come across the cabin and nobody's there. You could tell it's it's locked up that you know they're gone for the season and you break in and eat their stuff. And so you could say, well, you're stealing their property, but most people would say you're justified doing that. It's not immoral. Even there, it's depending on how the legal code works, it's possible that might not even be illegal. Right, there might be exceptions in the law for stuff like that. So that that's why I'm hesitating. It's I don't know enough about the law to come up with a thing that's clearly illegal, and yet we'd all say that's that's moral. But in any event, those things are distinct: legality and morality. Where they come together, though, in Rothbard's framework, is what what does it mean when you have the right to something? So you have the right to use heroin, right? Because think about it: you're not you're just using your own property. I mean, you don't have the right to steal someone else's heroin and shoot up with it. But you, assuming you own the heroin and you own the needle and da-da-da-da, you have the right to do that in terms of libertarian theory, right? Because, again, you're not initiating aggression on anybody. The NIP is the way to think through these issues. 
So how does that connect with morality? It does not mean it's moral for you to use heroin. It could be, but I'm saying the libertarian analysis doesn't tell you one way or the other. All the libertarian analysis tells you is in a free society, the legal code would recognize that you have the right to use heroin. And, and by the way, in speaking like that, it's not that you enumerate all these different rights. Like, oh, I have the right to free speech. I have the right to use heroin. I have the right to own a gun. No, it's you have property rights. And then those other things just flow from that. Okay. So what does that mean? That it would like be a violation of your rights to say you couldn't use heroin? How does that connect with morality? It says that it would be immoral for anyone else to use force or the threat of it to prevent you from using heroin. Okay, so that, that's the connection. So the fact that you have a right to do something or that's within your property rights to do it doesn't mean that it is moral for you to do it. It could be. It's just we don't know. We don't have enough information. But where the morality does kick in is we know it would be immoral for someone else to tackle you and grab the heroin out of your hand or to point a gun at your head and say, if you use that heroin, I'm going to kill you. All right? So that's the way Rothbard ties together morality and legality. And I'm just saying these things, even though I would think they'd be pretty straightforward just because I see a lot of confusion when people discuss this stuff, that they think as long as I'm not hurting anybody else or violating anyone else's property rights, not only do I have the right to do whatever it is I want to do, but it's moral, and some of them even insist, I don't want you judging me in your head. Like, like they, they feel, in a, in a free society, I would be able to do this, and no one would even think less of me for it, which is crazy. That doesn't follow at all. Okay. So that's what Rothbard does. That's his, that's his project. And just to speak a bit here, how would private laws come about? Well, in a free society there would still be conflict and there would still be a role for judges. And so the function of a private judge is to render his or her expert opinion on what the law says in a particular set of facts, All right? So an employee thinks that the firm didn't pay him correctly according to the formula for the winter bonus. and eventually goes to court. Now, maybe the contract actually would have had an arbitration agreement, and that's similar, right? In, in a free society, the private judges really would be like what we think of as arbitrators today. And goes to, before someone who's an expert in labor law, the company presents their evidence, the worker presents his or her evidence, and then the judge renders an opinion, right? Saying, well, this is what the law says. I'm looking at all the materials you've presented Here's my opinion. That's really what the judge does, is just write an opinion. And that's even the language we use today in the real world, right? There's the majority opinion or the dissent. And so the justices on the Supreme Court write out their opinions on what the constitutional law has to say about the particular case they just heard, All right? And so what Rothbard is doing in the ethics of liberty is he's basically saying this is a style guide for how judges in a libertarian society should approach the law. So Rothbard's not himself, he's, 
I guess you could say he's writing a rule book or a law book. He's like the Moses of Ancapistan, if you will. But you would still need judges. Like they, at best, they could take that book and absorb its principles and then go start issuing rulings when cases were brought before them. But by the way, in case you're wondering, like, well, gee, why, why would it, two people agree to go hear a case? Like the, the person who's in the wrong, wouldn't they just not agree to a particular judge or arbitrator's ruling? And the issue is, I mean, we could come up with different scenarios, but in general, that would look really bad if there was a pending dispute and you refuse to see any of the reputable judges. Because keep in mind, everybody would, in the community would know that, oh yeah, that, that judge over there is fair. When it comes to labor disputes, this judge is extremely even-handed, doesn't show a preference for the big companies, doesn't show a preference for the pressed worker, just really plays it by the rules. And those, the rulings are quite fair. You know, you can go look at the history of this judge's rulings and, you know, very few complaints, right? So if you were a firm, for example, and had an employee bring a suit and you just refused to go to arbitration, that would look bad. And so it'd be hard for you to attract talent in the future because word would get out that that firm doesn't honor its, its contracts and vice versa. If you were a worker and you refused to go to arbitration to submit your case to the opinion of a designated expert, well, then likewise, that would look bad for you and you'd have trouble getting another job. I mean, you might get fired from where you currently are and then future employers would take that into account and say, well, this guy, if there's ever a dispute, he doesn't agree to see any of the reputable judges in the area. All right, so that's a way to view what Rothbard's doing. And let's now go to the part in his book where he talks about children. So this is the edition I'm looking at, the section on children and rights of the ethics of liberty, remember? Okay, so it starts, it's section 14 or chapter 14. In my edition, it starts on page 97. So I'm just going to read some excerpts. Rothbard eventually concludes, First, we may say that the parents, or rather the mother, who is the only certain and visible parent, is the creators of the baby become its owners. All right, that might sound weird to you, but later he says, but surely the mother or parents may not receive the ownership of the child in absolute fee simple, because that would imply the bizarre state of affairs that a 50-year-old adult would be subject to the absolute and unquestioned jurisdiction of his 70-year-old parent. So the parental property right must be limited in time. But it also must be limited in kind, for it surely would be grotesque for a libertarian who believes in the right of self-ownership to advocate the right of a parent to murder or torture his or her children. Okay, so he's establishing, you know, how, how are we going to handle children here? And he's saying, in a sense, the mother owns the child. Oh, but wait a minute, it can't be absolute. And he goes on to say that it's like a, you know, uh, caretaker type or trustee or guardianship relation. But then, on the other hand, what can we say about the parents? Applying our theory to parents and children, this means that a parent does not have the right to aggress against his children, but also that the parent should not have a legal obligation to feed, clothe, or educate his children, since such obligations would entail positive acts coerced upon the parent and depriving the parent of his rights. All right? And so here, let me just keep reading. The parent, therefore, may not murder or mutilate his child, 
and the law properly outlaws a parent from doing so. But the parent should have the legal right not to feed the child, in other words, to allow it to die. The law, therefore, may not properly compel the parent to feed a child or to keep it alive. And then Rothbard says in parentheses, again, whether or not a parent has a moral rather than a legally enforceable obligation to keep his child alive is a completely separate question. Okay, so don't recoil too much in horror if you're unfamiliar with these passages. Rothbard is not saying, eh, no big deal. You let the kid, the toddler, and the high chairs starve to death. He's just saying in a free society, the parent wouldn't be breaking the law by neglecting the child such that the child starves to death. If the parent took out a hammer and smacked the kid's face in and killed it, that would be illegal. That would be murder. But to refrain from helping the helpless child would not be murder in Rothbard's framework. However, even, you know, that might, like I say, might be freaking some of you out, but Rothbard's quick to say, he's just talking about what the law is. You could still be a monster. You know, we could, the community could still think you're horrible, but the point is, he's saying that that's not a legally enforceable obligation on the part of the parent. And again, that's flowing out of the way Rothbard's viewing property rights. He's saying, just like if I'm walking down the street and I see some guy on the side who you know needs my help and I just keep walking, you could say I'm a monster, but I didn't just break the law. That the law can't force me to use my property to help other people, right? So I'm not here saying whether that's right or wrong. I'm just explaining this is where this is coming from. And you, there's a definite plausibility in what Rothbard is saying because once you open that door to other people could have legal claims on you, even though you didn't have any contractual relationships with them, then it's hard to stop that principle. Okay, uh, Rothbard, a few sentences later. No, I'm still reading right from where I left off. This rule allows us to solve such vexing questions as, should a parent have the right to allow a deformed baby to die? Example, by not feeding it. The answer is, of course, yes, following a fortiori from the larger right to allow any baby, whether deformed or not, to die. And then Rothbard says, though, as we shall see below, in a libertarian society, the existence of a free baby market will bring such neglect down to a minimum. And he's got neglect in quotation marks. Okay. And then I've got just a few more excerpts. That's what I'm doing, folks. I'm just reading some of these excerpts to show you what Rothbard did with this thorny issue of children in terms of libertarian legal theory and the ethics of liberty because I, I don't like it. I don't think it's right. But I'm just reading excerpts so you can see where he's coming from. Okay. Um, later he says... The mother then becomes at the birth of her child its trustee owner, legally obliged only not to aggress against the child's person since the child possesses the potential for self-ownership. Apart from that, so long as the child lives at home, it must necessarily come under the jurisdiction of its parents since it is living on property owned by those parents. Certainly the parents have the right to set down rules for the use of their home and property for all persons, whether children or not, living in that home. Right, So that's the familiar... As long as you're living under my roof, you're going to follow my rules, right? That stands, follows quite standardly from, standardly, is that a word? From Rothbard's analysis. Okay, but then he goes on to wonder, when does this trustee ownership condition end? When you're 50 years old, it's not that your parents still 
get to control your life the way they did when you were four. And Rothbard says, the clue to the solution of this thorny question lies in the parental property rights in their home. For the child has his full rights of self-ownership when he demonstrates that he has them in nature. In short, when he leaves or runs away, and runs away is in quotation marks, from home. Regardless of his age, we must grant to every child the absolute right to run away and to find new foster parents who will voluntarily adopt him or to try to exist on his own. Parents may try to persuade the runaway child to return, but it is totally impermissible enslavement and an aggression upon his right of self-ownership for them to use force to compel him to return. The absolute right to run away is the child's ultimate expression of his right of self-ownership, regardless of age. Okay, so I, I think that's crazy. I'm just going to be blunt. It might not sound so bad if you're thinking of like a 16 or a 17-year-old and they run away and they get a job and they're like, no, no, I don't need you because it, yeah, it is a bit awkward if what you're going to do, just go in and physically grab the kid and because if the, depending on how big the kid is, you might have to hire outside help. And, and then what, are you going to keep him in a cage in your house? So in practice, especially for an older kid, if they really hate your guts and then they're going to do everything in their power to escape your house, you know, at some point that's tough. Right? But there was nothing in Rothbard's discussion there that would rule out a six-year-old running away doing the same thing. And so push to the limit, if some guy driving a van by your house talks to your six-year-old in the front lawn and says, hey, do you want to come live with me? I'll give you candy all day and you can watch cartoons all day. And the kid says, yes, I prefer. And signs, <laughs> signs put, puts his mark on a piece of paper that says, I have sound mind and body. Do hereby switch to the new foster care of so-and-so. I mean, that's crazy. All right, so... It's like Walter Block and some co-authors had a, an essay on this. I'll link to it at the show notes page. So again, you're listening to BobMurphyShow.com slash 182 right now. And they also were, were saying, you know, that, that passage really, Rothbard has to mean there's a more drawn out process where the court comes in and blah, blah, blah. And it can't be just as neat and simple as, as Rothbard's making it sound there. So, and the other thing too is I, I don't think the parents are the owners of the kids. And, and Rothbard, again, in defense of him, he was saying, well, trustee, owner, but still, he's using the term owner. And just the, the general principle of, well, they can't do whatever they want to the kid, but they can do a lot. And why? Well, because the kid has potential self owner. This just all seemed very loosey-goosey to me when I first read it. And now that I'm a parent, I really am sure I disagree with some of those things. And the, the other stuff too about, you know, letting the kids starve to death and whatever. So the challenge is you don't just want to say, well, let me just consult my intuition and say what I think the right answers are on these particular issues and then just say, well, that's what the law should be. All right, because that's not very elegant. But beyond that, the law... And this is really a fascinating subject to like just think through like what does the law do? And there's lots of classics in this stuff. Like um, if you've never heard of it, Bruno Leone had a book called Freedom and the Law. I highly recommend it. It's great stuff. There's an internal logic to it. Just like if you're familiar with the study of languages, 
like the way like Noam Chomsky or something would do, right? So to look at language, to analyze the, them and not, some other, not just saying, oh, and the grammar in this language is such and such. And what do we mean by the romance languages? But I'm saying like the structure of language itself and just analyzing it scientifically, it's really fascinating because it's not arbitrary. And so likewise, the law is an arbitrary. And among other things, the law is supposed to provide predictability. It's a method by which humans help to organize their affairs to plan their activities so that they are coordinated in some fashion. And that's one of the things that the, the legal code gives to us is, is to aid in that in planning and the predictability of the future. And so you don't want, when there's a legal dispute involving kids, you don't want judges just firing off stuff that a majority of the public would approve of because maybe the public opinion doesn't have consistent views. And even though there's plenty of areas where it's, quote, obvious what the just ruling would be from a judge, that might not be enough, right, to just build up this body of obvious no-brainers that might not help us in areas where some of those obvious intuitions contradict each other. Like, you know, real hard cases where it's like, oh, on the one hand, you want to say this person's in the right, but geez, because of these other considerations. And so that's what the, the judge does. The judge is the one who figures out, okay, among the different types of precedent and legal rules and da 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 And, you know, maybe there were contracts that were signed. Let me go read those and see what the intent was. Da, 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 da. Here's how I rule in this particular case. And that's what the expertise and creative genius in some cases comes from or that's how it manifests itself. That's what the judge is doing you still need judges, right? So the, everything can't just be spelled out, written down, and every contingency can't be anticipated when people even have a contract. So that's why you need judges to interpret and apply the law. So when it comes to kids, I would like something, and I've always wanted something that was more concrete than just, well, they're potential future owners. And so that's what, I mean, for one thing, what if the kid's born in is in a coma or something, you know, is, is, or what if someone later falls into a coma? You know, it's, it's tricky things that occur. And just to say, well, they're going to be a future self-owner, I think doesn't necessarily capture all the different scenarios. And, it, and again, it seems kind of arbitrary or ad hoc, let's say. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't provide predictability. Okay? So that's why what I always wanted was to say, I would like it if, we could come up with general principles that happen to include the case of children as particular examples or illustrations of those more general principles. So I talked about one back in episode 180 that I've had for a while is that the reason, for example, adults can't sleep with children is not because a bunch of politicians signed legislation that codified the age for consent and, and define certain activities as statutory rape. It's not because of that, because there wouldn't be politicians in a free society. Where that would flow out of, I think, is just the general idea that in certain circumstances, people can't give valid consent. So I'm just recapitulating my argument from episode 180. If somebody's really drunk at the bar and somebody else is like, hey, hey, let's play one more game of darts. Here, let's take out this cocktail napkin. If I win, I get your house. 
And if you win, you get my house, okay? Let's sign here. And then one of them's going to lose. And I want to say the next day, I could totally see that that cocktail napkin doesn't stand up in court. The person who, quote, lost his house is going to say, oh, come on, we were both hammered. This is, this is crazy. That's, I was not in the right frame of mind to consent to such a risky venture as playing a game of darts with my house on the line. That's crazy. If I had been of sound mind, I wouldn't have done that. Right. And so I, I could see that. And so that principle is how I was saying someone going up to a six year old and said, Hey, I can give you three lollipops if you let me put you under and have a surgeon take out one of your kidneys so I can sell it on the market. And the kid says, Oh, well, okay. No, the kid legally cannot be allowed to agree to that because he doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't understand the ramifications of such an act. Now, a 35 year old. If some broker approaches them and says, hey, we ran some, you know, ran your blood test or whatever. You look like you're in perfect physical health. And uh, we see you have a lot of credit card debt or whatever. Give you $50,000 if you let us take one of your kidneys. I said, okay. That's would be legal in a free society, that kind of transaction. But you wouldn't let a six-year-old do it because the six-year-old has no idea. That's the idea. And so then that's also why a six-year-old can't meaningfully consent to inappropriate relations with adults and the, the adult would be in trouble for doing that just like the adult would be in trouble for putting a kid under and taking his kidney out even if the kid had signed a piece of paper saying it was okay that that piece of paper would not be a defense all right so that's was something i had thought of before but now i want to extend that a little bit and, and so here's the way, so I agree that, you know, Rosbard said it, Walter Block in his paper with his co-author says it. We're all groping around with the idea that the parent is sort of like the trustee taking care of the kid while the kid is not capable of taking care of him or herself. And then over time that we know that that trustee role has to diminish such that at some point the kid attains legal maturity and is a full-fledged member of society and that the parent can no longer legally, you know, interfere with the kid's exercise of his or her autonomy. But a lot of that's pretty ad hoc. And so here's, here's a, my suggestion, my modest proposal for how we could embed that in something that's a, a more general feature of libertarian law. So first picture a regular trust relationship where they get the trust or Right, let's say it's uh, somebody wants to set up a, a scholarship fund. And so the trustor, he puts aside a million dollars, he designates a trustee, and he writes out rules saying, okay, here's how I want you to administer the trust. I want you to invest the million dollars in conservative bonds issued by big companies and you know, maybe the U.S. federal government. And, well, no, the, the, we're, we're imagining a free society. There wouldn't be a U.S. federal government. So put it in bonds that are issued by you know, large firms. Let's say they're, they're all AAA bonds, right? Because there would still be rating agencies, stuff like that. All right, so that's how we, we protect the principal and get a modest rate of return. And then I want you to administer my scholarship fund based according to these criteria. Like here's the eligibility then you're going to have an essay contest and you're going to judge the essays. You know, here's the, what I want you to use, the rubric for evaluating them. And then, you know, based on how much money you have, and da, 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 you can figure out how many 
scholarships to give. Okay. And then the beneficiaries are the people getting, getting the scholarships from the trust. Okay. So that's how it works. The trustor is the one who puts up the money and then comes up with the instructions. The trustee is the person hired by the trustor to administer the trust. And then the beneficiary is the person or entity or plural of those that benefits from the existence of the trust. The trust is administered by the trustee on behalf of the trustor for the benefit of the beneficiaries. Okay. So what would happen if the trustor puts the million dollars up, selects the trustee, and then has the documents spelling out, these are my wishes for how the trust should be administered. And then that paperwork just goes missing. And we just, whoa, we don't know where, uh-oh, what do we do? And so I, here I am, I'm just speculating. I, it's not that I went and researched this or asked a lawyer, but I'm thinking they would surely, like they wouldn't just, the property wouldn't just sit there not being used, right? It's not that there would forever be a million dollars sitting in a checking account or something and nobody could ever touch it. Can you imagine Selgin and White, how much that would cause them physical pain? In other words, a million dollars in gold sitting in a bank vault somewhere and no one could touch it. Just they, oh, they wouldn't be able to get to sleep. So I think they'd still be able to use it. And they, I, I'm guessing they would just say something like, well, look at similar trusts like this and administer it in that type of fashion. And also they might say, well, given the other evidence we have of the frame of mind and the desires of the trustor, do your best to approximate that. So yes, we don't have the actual documents the trustor wrote up. We lost those, but given what we know of his personality, like, oh, this three years ago, he made a speech and he laid out some principles for philanthropy. So why don't you go read that? And da, da, da. You, know, you do something like that, right? So I want to say, what if the way to conceive of the legal status of children in, in such a free society is that there's a trustee who's the legal guardian of the child. The child is the beneficiary of the trust and the trustor is the future adult child or the child in his future self as the adult. And so what you're doing as the parent or legal guardian of the child is you are acting as a trustee, taking care of the child's property, including his or her body, on behalf of the wishes of the future version of that child. I think it's something like that, or at least if you play with that, that satisfies a lot of what we intuitively want to be the case. Okay, so for one thing, does the parent own the child? No. Just like go back to just a regular trust relationship, the trustee does not own the assets in the trust. Like we don't even say, yeah, he's the owner, but not really, or not the full owner. I don't, I don't think we use that terminology. I don't think we say the trustee owns the assets in the trust, not at all. It's not even like we have an asterisk. No, the, the, the trustee administers the assets in the trust, but I don't think we would say the trustee owns them. I, I could be wrong on that. And if so, someone point in the comments and I'll not repeat that mistake in the future. But I, I don't think, I've never heard people talk like that, put it that way. All right. 
And so likewise, I don't think it's true to say the parent owns the child, not even in an attenuated sense, right? Like normal people are creeped out by that. And so, okay, that's a good feature of my theory is we don't have to say that. <laughs> it avoids that creepiness. And not because I designed it on purpose to get that outcome is what I'm saying. Like that just kind of flows naturally from this approach. Let's take a quick break from the discussion for some housekeeping here. For those of you who were in the supporting listeners group and you got locked out of Facebook, we've since moved to MeWe. So if you can't get back into Facebook to see the instructions for how to get over to MeWe, just contact me directly and I'll help you out. For those of you who would like to join the supporting listeners group, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute and you can see the, the relatively paltry amount that you would need to hand me in those dirty fiat dollars in order to get into the fun group at MeWe. And always remember, if you can't make a financial contribution, it still helps a lot. If you share these episodes with people you think might be interested, give them a little taste. Just, hey, hey, what about, this? what about this perspective? That's always a great help as well. Thanks for listening, everybody, and let's get back to the show. The other thing that's interesting is as the child gets older we become better able to predict what the wishes of the future version of that child will be, right? So when there's a newborn, you really have no idea what the 18 or the 21-year-old version of that person is going to be. You have no idea what their personality is going to be like or what their views in terms of risk versus adventure are going to be, whether they're going to be a vegan whether they're going to want to go to college, so on and so forth, whether they would really have wanted to get piano lessons from age 8 to 13. When the kid's newborn, we have no idea, except in terms of just generic human experience or maybe human experience in that culture where that baby's born and given the socioeconomic position of that child in that culture. And then as the child grows, though, and becomes more developed, now we do have a better idea. When the, by the time a kid's 10, we have a lot better idea of what that kid at 18 or 21 will be like compared to when the kid was just born, right? And so that's what I was saying in the, you know, in the analog where it was the, just a conventional trust. If we lost the documents and we didn't know what the trustor's intentions were or desires were for how the trust should be administered, we would just kind of have to default to, well, what's a real conservative thing that lots of people in this position would want. But if we had more specific information, we went and reviewed a speech that the guy gave where he said, yeah, I, I don't, you know, I like to swing for the fences with my investment philosophy. You know, I, I just, I like to go through and research a few firms and just pick a few winners and just put all my eggs in those baskets. And I know it's not, it's not what the gurus will tell you, but, you know, I don't believe in that stuff then maybe you get more information. You say, oh, okay, maybe this person would want me to be more aggressive in how we invest the funds that constitute the trust to try to get a higher rate of return, for example. So in any event, that's how I think things could proceed with children in libertarian legal theory. And so as the child grows and matures, what it means to be acting in the best interest of the child starts differing between children, whereas when it comes to just infants. But it also does matter too in terms of just the, the general culture. All right, so what might 
be considered child abuse or neglect in one culture might not be in a different one. And again, that's not cultural relativism. I'm just explaining that's the way, certainly not in a, in a moral sense, but I'm just explaining the way the, the legal code in those free societies would, would play out. So also, you know, Rothbard's idea of the kid just being able to run away, no, that doesn't follow at all. That would just be like with a, with a regular trust relationship, you know, somebody puts up a million dollars, names a trustee and says, okay, the beneficiary is this, this guy over here. And, you know, here's my conditions for how to administer the trust on his behalf. If he wants to start a business, you can go ahead and fund that. But if he's just going to use it to go buy drugs, then, then no, you can't. Don't fund that. Okay? And then a guy has a temper tantrum and just says, no, no, no. I, I declare my natural right to self-ownership. I mean, I've looked up in Rothbard and I declare I'm of sound mind and body and I want that million dollars. This trustee, he doesn't know what he's doing. Get rid of this guy. I should, that should just be my money. Well, that doesn't follow. You, you can't just do that. So likewise, the six-year-old just announcing I'm leaving, that that by itself does not... Well, he, well here's what the, the idea is. You'd have, you have to ask, is that what the trustor would want? And so you have to ask the future self, the one that we legally recognize as being fully competent to make decisions, would they want the six-year-old to be able to run away? And the answer is no, right? I actually ran away when I was a little kid. I, I was going to the parade, like we had gone the day before, and I just thought the parade happened every day. <laughs> and my parents were having a cookout, and I was in the front yard, and I just started walking down the street. And then some lady, I, I don't know how old, I, I was younger than six, and some lady was driving around, and she's like, young man, do your parents know where you are? What are you doing? And I said, I'm going on a parade. She's like, do your parents know where you are? And I said, I don't know. And I, she actually got me to go in her car and she drove me home. So it's a good thing you know, she wasn't a kidnapper. Otherwise, who would be doing this episode right now? But that's what happened. So according to Rothbard, I mean, I guess he would say she persuaded me because I, you know, I don't think she physically tackled me or something. I don't, I don't remember. But, you know, that's there. I was... I had decided to leave home. And so now as my future self, I'm glad that lady got me for sure. And if even if she had picked me up and walked me back to my parents, you know, they would have certainly been relieved. And me looking back now, I would say, yeah, I'm glad she did that. All right. So that I think that's the standard you would use. So notice that does have that does have the appealing property that as the kid gets older. Now the kid's immediate wishes in the present are a better signal of what that future person would want as an adult, as a legally recognized adult, as the, as the kid's older, right? So because by the time you're 17, if you say, I don't want to live here, these parents are terrible, get me out of here, that's much better evidence that your 21-year-old self, I keep saying 21, that's, of course, just grabbing that out of the air because of what's the age here for certain things, but I'm just using that as a placeholder. There had to be some other principle to figure that out. But by the time you're 17, we have a much better idea that your actions then correspond to what your 21-year-old self would want as opposed to when you're six, all right? So it does have that nice feature that the older you get, the more your current wishes we would expect to reflect what your trust or self in the future would want. And so that's why 
it is more plausible for an older kid to be able to, to leave. Okay. And then also too, with all this stuff, like really egregious stuff, like serious child abuse and neglect, that's all, you know, clearly not what you would probably want as an adult for it to have been done to you. And so that's how you could, you know, legally the law could step in and say, yeah, this, this is not, the trustee here is not acting appropriately. And so somebody else could come in and become the new trustee. All right. So I agree there's a lot more to be worked out here, but I want to say don't do it starting with children because that's, that's too complicated and messy. First, just do a more general case of just a standard trust. And so what would happen if the original trustor dies and now the trustee is running it and then we feel that the trustee is not doing it right? So one obvious thing is the beneficiary could complain and you know, bring up legal challenges. But what if the beneficiary doesn't know what's going on, right? What if the beneficiary is just not particularly savvy and outsiders can look at the situation and they know full well that the trustee is embezzling funds from the trust? So just legally, how does that, you know, how, who has standing, for example? Can anybody just challenge that? And then, you know, how does that work? So I'm saying answer the, those questions just in the sense of a, or the context of a standard trust relationship. And then I think that would shed a lot of light on, you know, if we're just in the store and we see some parents smacking their kid around, does that mean, you know, I as just an observer can go to a judge and say, hey, that parent's engaged in abuse and we should be able to take that kid out of the, at home, right? That that's what you're effectively doing is saying we want to change the trustee who's acting on behalf of that future child's trustor. And so, again, just, just how, do, how would that work in general when someone feels that the trustee is not acting in accordance with the wishes of the trustor? So there you go. That's my modest proposal. I think that solves a lot of the thorny issues. And in any event, it's fun stuff to go ahead and just think these things through because we are trying to show there is a better way. We can imagine a society that's not based on this coercive institution that taxes us and claims a monopoly on legal decisions in a certain jurisdiction, namely the state. We don't need it. Actually, before wrapping up this episode, here's an addendum. I realized I had jotted notes to myself and I forgot to go over it during the episode. I got so into it, I got so excited. So what I wanted to do was make the point that, <laughs> and it's fine, I'll, I'll let the baby's noises remain on this because, hey, it's an episode about kids. He doesn't know what he's doing. That one way to think about children, it's I like the line if, uh, for those of you who saw the second Star Trek movie, The Wrath of Khan, where near the end, the Enterprise is playing a game of cat and mouse with, the, with Khan's ship, and Spock looks up at Kirk and he says, Something like, uh, he is intelligent, but inexperienced. His pattern suggests two-dimensional thinking. All right, and then, you know, they, they move their Z-coordinate, and that's how they catch Khan off guard, because he's still thinking in terms of, like, a naval battle on the ocean. He's not thinking in terms of three-dimensional volume of outer space. So, that line, he is intelligent, but inexperienced, that's what kids are. So, it's not that they're, like, morons or something. They're intelligent, like their minds are sharp, but 
they just, they have no experience. They don't know anything. They have no facts, right? So they can absorb new material very quickly. And in fact, kids can famously, you know, learn. If you move to a foreign land when you're an adult and you have a little kid, the little kid's going to end up being a fluent speaker in that language, whereas you probably never will be, right? So kids, their minds are very plastic. They're very adaptable. But at least initially, they don't know anything. So they have to rely on the wisdom of their elders and the social institutions that even going way back, their ancestors developed, okay? And then, of course, they can innovate within that framework once they learn, once they master what their predecessors have created, then they can try to tweak things and make them better. So two quick stories on that. My older son, not the one you hear trying his best to ruin this episode, he, <laughs> he uh, one time... I was driving and he was in the car seat in the back and this is when they were forward facing. So, you know, he could see me, see what I was doing. And I look over my shoulder and I say, hey, buddy, uh, at some point, you know, you're just going to keep getting bigger and you'll you'll be out of that car seat and you'll come up here and you'll be driving. And then he thought for a second and he goes, oh, and will you get smaller when you'll be in this seat? Right? That he thought we were going to swap positions. And, you know, that's like, oh... How, how dumb, but no, I mean, that's perfectly reasonable given what he knew at that time. Why would his body get bigger and him turn into me? I mean, if that makes sense, well, then maybe I shrink and turn into a baby. You know, <laughs> why, why not, right? So that's an example. And then another time when he was older, I don't remember exactly how old, but old enough that he could walk around and stuff, but that's about it. And so I was like trying to get him psyched up because I had to go in the backyard and rake the leaves. And, I, you know, I needed to keep an eye on him, so I needed him to come over. So I was like, hey, buddy, you want to go in the backyard and uh, help me rake leaves for $5? And he goes, uh, okay, but I only have $3. <laughs> if that doesn't make you go, oh, then something's wrong with you, all right? So that's another example where he just had no context, all right? He didn't realize I was offering to pay him. He thought I was charging him for the privilege of raking with me. Incidentally, the joke was on me because we get out there and then at some point he goes, hey, guess where I hid the rake, right? So he actually did have negative productivity and he should have been paying me. Um, so those are examples though of what I'm talking about and just showing why, yeah, kids, little kids in particular cannot make important decisions affecting their future because they just, again, like he's not in a very strong bargaining position, is he, when he's offering to pay me to help me rake, all right? So you can't let kids be the master of their own destinies and their own property the way you would let an adult, right? That's that's why they have things like trusts, for example, for, for minors. That's like a quintessential example that if, uh, you know, you could set up a trust if, if the parents die, then they probably, you know, if they've really been careful with their will and everything, if they got young kids, then some trustee comes in, takes the life insurance proceeds and administers it on behalf of the, the children, you know, paying for their college or whatever. But the kid says, hey, I want to go on a whirlwind tour of all the best roller coasters in the world and blow my parents' life insurance proceeds. The trustee is going to say, no, I'm not letting you do that, all right? So the other thing is just to briefly touch on Walter Block et al.'s paper where they go over, here I'll read, it's Ed Smith and Jordan Real are the other co-authors, and this is from the 2014 issue of the International Journal of Health Policy Management, I think is what 
this journal's title is. And it's called The Natural Rights of Children. So let me just give two things from this. On the one hand, showing what I really like about this article. On the other hand, showing what I don't like. So what I like is Block et al. are trying, like I have been doing, to come up with a specific answer regarding what does the court do with respect to children in a certain situation, not by just some ad hoc, well, we feel this is right, because come on, it's a kid. And this has to be it. This has to be the answer. Like instead trying to embed it in a bigger framework of libertarian legal theory. And so what Block does and his co-authors in this is for the issue of can a parent just neglect a kid and let the kid starve to death inside the house, right? Because if you remember those passages from Rothbard, it sounded like Rothbard was saying, yeah, you could because the parent has no obligation to feed the child. And so what Block et al. says, no, you can't, but they don't just say, oh, because that'd be crazy. They, they go to Block's theory of homesteading, and he says, imagine like a donut-shaped area. So it's, it's originally all virgin land. No human has ever laid eyes upon the thing, so it's unowned. And now in terms of libertarian theory, the first person that comes along can homestead it. And there's different conditions for how do you do that to make it, your pro- to make it going from unowned to being your property. And so Block says, could, we, could somebody rightfully homestead just like a donut so that the, the area of the donut is the person's now, but the interior isn't? And Block says, no, you couldn't do that because now the person who owns the donut could prevent other people from crossing over into the interior. And so that would be denying other people their ability to homestead unowned territory. So Block is saying you're not allowed to do that because you would effectively be exercising control over the whole thing. So maybe you want to say you're the owner of the entire circle, the entire disc, but you couldn't just homestead the donut shape and not be the owner of the interior. That wouldn't be allowed. And so Block is saying by the same token that I just gave the baby a little bottle of aspirin. It's got the childproof cap on, don't worry, folks. So he's shaking that for a minute. You can prevent people from coming in if that were allowed, and Block is just saying that that can't be right, right? So that's why you're not allowed to do that. So if you buy that, Block is saying that's why a parent couldn't abandon the child inside his house and not let other people come in who want to become the alternate caregivers. Because in a sense, it's like you're abandoning property and then preventing other people from coming in and homesteading. All right, so I'm not saying I necessarily endorse that analysis, but that's the kind of thing that I think needs to be done if libertarians want to shore up the handling or the treatment of children legally in a free society. The theory behind that is I think that's the way you would do it. Again, you want to ground it in more general principles so you're not just making stuff up so it's more predictable, but also it's on a firmer foundation. Okay. Now, an example of where it is kind of just ad hoc is when they are now, so after all the deliberation, they're now summarizing, you know, the kinds of things they've concluded. So they say, with this background, let us now respond to the challenges to the theory posed above. Do the parents have any obligation to support the child? No. Are they free to dump him out? Yes, to the orphanage, hospital, religious organization that takes on babies, or to an adoptive parent. May the initial parent starve or freeze the baby to death? Certainly not. Are the parents obliged to try to find an alternative caregiver first? Yes, indeed. However, if there is not a single solitary adult on the planet who wishes to take on this role, then and only then may the baby be put to death. Can the parents, for instance, 
put the child behind a window and charge viewers to watch it starve to death. No, that is grotesque. Do they have an obligation to find out? Okay, then they go on. So it's that last part there that I'm saying. So I agree with them. Yeah, you can't do that. That's crazy. But the reason would have to be more than simply, no, that is grotesque, right? Because they've established, it's not clear in the their sort of rapid fire question and answer there if they're talking about a scenario in which there really is no one on planet Earth who wants to take over as the legal guardian of the kid. And so then Block's saying, well, and then and only in that circumstance would it be legal to just let the kid perish from neglect, not you still can't actively end the life. And then in that scenario, could you charge for people to watch it? I think that's what they're talking about, but maybe not. Maybe they just flip back to the more general case where you're not allowed to let them perish anyway. But in any event, it's not clear if you are legally allowed to do something, why wouldn't you be allowed to charge other people to watch you do it, right? That that would be, the reasoning they're giving there is exactly the kind of thing that like right-wing conservatives who are against prostitution would say, right? They would say, okay, yes, it should be legal for adults to uh, sleep with each other, but it's illegal for one adult to pay another adult to do so because that's grotesque, right? And so I'm pretty sure Walter Block would break that down and say, well, no, I mean, if you have the legal right to do the thing in the first place, how could you not have the ability to charge for it? That doesn't make any sense. If it's okay, then, you know, there, there's an old George Carlin joke along those lines that involves profanity, so I won't repeat it, but same kind of thing. All right, so same kind of analysis. So that's that's my concern. The, in libertarian theory regarding children, a lot of times people just assert things, and I don't disagree with their moral intuition, but... Again, the idea is if a case comes before a judge, presumably the judge would want to say something when writing the opinion besides simply, that's grotesque. So that's why this is illegal. Okay, I will wrap up the episode there and catch you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.